okay, it's going to happen again, even though it's against my better judgment and it freaks me out. But um, I have to do this because if I don't, I'm going to get in really big trouble. So here comes. Sit back and listen to part two of the Ask Todd Questions podcast. You asked for it. I don't know why. I can't even tell you why you'd ask for it, but here it comes. This is part two of the Ask Todd Questions podcast for you. Hey, everybody, Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast, Todd Conklin. How are you? It is so good to hear your voice and see your sweet little face. Man, have I been missing you. I kind of am missing you guys. I haven't seen very many, and neither have you. I mean, we're all kind of in the same boat, so I think we share this. But I haven't I haven't had a lot of uh, peer contact, you know, with the cool people we hang out with and get to chat and laugh mostly. That's what I like to do the best. I, I kind of miss that. But there seems to be uh, some feeling that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and that's exciting. I mean, that's really exciting. And that, my friends, makes all the difference in the world. It kind of has, too. Some good things have come out of this horribleness, and some horrible things have happened. And I hope we learn from both the good and the bad. I hope we take out, I hope we're smarter and better. Because who wants to go back to normal? Who said normal was great? I I didn't hear anybody say it, and I don't know if you did either. The ability to bounce forward into something better, that's what we all want. And um and I think it's possible. I don't know. I mean, it's possible. We'll see what happens, but you can start seeing everything kind of there's there's maybe a light at the end of the tunnel. If that's I could be too early on this too. Uh and if so, you'll have a record of it. But uh I mean, the roaring 20s last century were the Roaring Twenties for a reason. Post-1918 pandemic, Roaring Twenties. I think we could have like Roaring Twenties, well, be, for us it's going to be my, more like Roaring 2024s. But it could still, we could still have some Roaringness in our Twenties as well. So that's something to look forward to. Flapper dancing, um, speakeasies, uh, bowler hats, that kind of stuff. I mean, doesn't it all sound super interesting and attractive? Because I think it kind of does. But, you know, I would. So it's been a great and wonderful week because in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, where I live, it's um, it feels like spring. It's not. I mean, this is this is just a mean joke is all this is. But it feels like spring, which it gets everything kind of pumping. You know, you're you're ready the outdoor TV is up and running. You know, everything's got little green buds on the end of it. And stuff's happening, right? Even though I know, because April is the cruelest month, and May is not that much nicer, that we're still going to get smacked with a big snowstorm or some super cold temperatures or some crappy weather. It's still going to happen. It happens every year. Every year I deny it happens, but every year it happens. I'm always really angry when our biggest snowstorm of the year happens in May because it just doesn't seem fair. I mean, that's not fair, but I guess you could tell me life's not fair. And the thing about a big snowstorm in May, if it snows on Tuesday, it's pretty much gone on Wednesday. So you can live through it. I mean, it's not, it's not terminal, but it feels kind of like it is. But I think mostly what it is, is just the, the joy of spring, the kind of rejuvenation 
that spring brings and how much fun it is to kind of head into an exciting future that is at least brighter and better than the recent past, which I think takes us right back around to the light at the end of the tunnel and the excitement and all the things that are happening. I'm super curious about that. So that's interesting. What else do I have going on? A bunch of stuff. I'm trying desperately to get a lot of things accomplished, uh, not the least of which is I'm remodeling a bathroom, which, you know, for those of us, and there are many of us on the pod right now that have done this before, it's never that fun to remodel something in your house whilst you live in your house. It's, it's just kind of a way to think, wow, I didn't think it, the place could get dustier. But look, it is. It's it's this dust makes the way I clean look like I'm a genius cleaner. This is so much dirtier than it normally is. So you know all that's going around, and everything costs. Every trip to the lumber store costs a hundred dollars. If you go for one light bulb, one hinge, it's a hundred dollars. I mean, it's and and that's the minimum. I mean, it can go way up from there, and it kind of did. I mean, this is a it's a project that's. I ended up replumbing my house. A lot of us are doing that. Um, folks in Houston had to pay plumbers off with Bitcoin. I hear that is pretty crazy, but that's been, that's been going in my life. The podcast today is interesting. I, I never imagined I would do one of these, let alone do two. So I feel strangely awkward about it, but we got so many good questions and I promised that I would get back to them. And then I kind of thought you'd forget and it'd go away. And the problem is, is people aren't forgetting. So I'm getting these really nice, super polite, polite um, emails reminding me of these questions they want answered. So that's kind of where we have to be on the journey is I have to provide some answers. So I'm going to do that. I'll, I'll read the questions just like I did last time. And then I'll come up with some crappy answer just like I did last time. And and we'll go from there and, and see what you guys think, because I think this could be um, maybe the last time this ever happens. That's not a threat. I'm not, I don't mean it threatening. I'm just, uh, there. it seems like there are more interesting people for us to talk to, at least for me to talk to. Um, and so maybe we'll do that. Without any further ado, let's roll in to the last and final, maybe, I don't know if it is or not, uh, ask questions to Todd podcast and then we'll have this out of the way and we can move on to bigger and brighter things. So here we go. Okay. So this comes from somebody um, whose name is Steve who says to me, this one's really going to be interesting. Todd, in many ways you're known as the, person who initially introduced the concept of learning teams into contemporary safety thinking, certainly on an applied level. How did you come up with this idea? How did you select this name? And did you ever imagine this idea would get the traction and leverage that it's getting across the globe? Thanks for playing the podcast. I don't really play them. Oh, that was editorial. Thanks for playing the podcast. I listen as much as I possibly can. Signed, Steve. So, Steve, first of all, that's a really sweet question. I, it's, 
So I could tell you when the, the concept of learning teams started, and I can absolutely tell you that uh, this is not a new idea or novel idea. It's been around a long time. I mean, the whole idea of talking to workers seems kind of obvious, but maybe that's just because we're talking. But, I mean, people have been talking to workers a long time. And, and, and I think of things like the quality programs, at least in my career, when we went through quality circles and, and when you look at lean thinking, go to the Gimba, talk to the worker. I mean, so I think the idea has been around a long time. Uh, I do, unfortunately, probably have to take the heat for the title that they've been given. And I, I, I can tell you this. If I would have thought for one millisecond that this concept learning teams would get as popular as it got, I would have called them something much, much more interesting than learning teams. I mean, learning teams is not a bad name. It's descriptive, and that's kind of why we picked it. But I don't think it's terribly clever, and it's not something that, you know, you'd think, wow, that sounds so cool. Like quality circles sounded kind of cool. Learning teams is just kind of a description of what's happening and who's doing it, which, like I said, is kind of where we came up with it. So, so they happened – uh, so the the first learning team learning team happened at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and uh, and myself and a, a fellow named Chris Cantwell were discussing an event that had happened that was pretty interesting. The event that had transpired was, I would say, it was a very interesting close call. It, it wasn't really an event, but the reason it wasn't an event is because it failed safely. Or failed luckily, and we'll have to sort of determine. But we had a grad student go into the field and set up a lightning monitor, um, and the field in this case was the Gulf Coast of the United States. And in the process of setting up this lightning monitor, dropped a wrench into a battery pack, which was big, like lots of batteries in a bit, and it had a straight short across the DC battery pack. And so that's pretty. Um, I mean, that's that's potentially. It could be a bad event, right? I mean, it, it it had all the makings of something that was really bad. But instead, what he did was went and got a stick off the ground and poked it in the battery box and kicked the wrench off and stopped the short and then crossed his fingers, hooked everything up, turned it on, and hoped it would work. And it worked. So then the grad student comes back to the laboratory, to our facility, and that next week he has to take electrical safety training, which seems a little bit, uh, uh, horse before the cart. No cart before the horse. If you know, it seems like the seems like you'd want him to take that before he went in the field and hooked up some elaborate DC system that he could short out with a wrench. But, but that's neither here nor there. So he went to the electrical safety training, which um was given by a guy named Lloyd Gordon, who's great. I mean, he's he's an amazing electrical safety dude, and he told them that everything should be reported in the ability to learn better. And then the grad student said, well, what if this happens in the field? And Lloyd says, oh, if that happened, you definitely need to report that. So the grad student, because he wants to get a job at the laboratory and he wants to be a good student and he wants to make his mentors happy, he comes back and reports on himself. And so the division that had this event had this event and they had to do something and they didn't want to do an investigation because they didn't want to punish the guy. But they didn't know what else to do, and that takes us to Chris Cantwell and myself standing in the hallway. 
and we're standing in the hallway of our office and Chris says, I, I wish there was a way we could just bring together a bunch of workers and just ask them to help formulate the problem and ask them to help create the solution. And I said, well, let's do it. I mean, there's totally a way to do that. We just do it. I'll, I'll take that action tomorrow. And so we did. We, we got some people together, peers. We didn't have the grad student himself in the, in the learning team because at the time we didn't think that would be good. But we had peers and people who had expertise in that kind of field work. And they came together, and the rest is kind of history. The first meeting was amazing because we started learning so much more stuff. We had a second meeting, and the second meeting was really interesting because that artificial break between meeting one and meeting two allowed us to really shift into sort of understanding and doing some findings, some, some conclusions, maybe some fixes in that case. And it was so interesting because we thought we were going to actually go into this learning team to look at an electrical safety problem, but what we ended up actually coming out of the learning team with was really a pretty damning set of information, not a report, but a set of information on how poorly we were at actually managing and supervising grad students. And it changed the entire program, and it was really, really important and very successful. And we started calling it a learning team because, again, it was descriptive. It's, this was a team that was set up to learn and that's how we kicked it off. And that's kind of what started. And we did a bunch of them at Los Alamos because it kind of fit the culture and they sort of took off and they started being used for operational reasons. And from there, we, we just kind of thought it was something we did. In fact, I think what we thought at Los Alamos is that every place did these, not just us. I mean, every place must do these. We, we, this is just, we just stumbled on this because other people didn't tell us. Long story short is not every place does this. And I remember the next time we took them out, we took them out for General Electric because they were doing a, a kind of a new view safety program really around the globe. And that's where we started rolling out learning teams. And that's where Bob Edwards actually got involved in the learning teams as well. And what's amazing is that we kept them purposely unstructured. We didn't have a certification or a qualification or a training. We, we kept them really loosey-goosey, and we didn't put a lot of parameters around it because we didn't really care about the parameters around it. What we cared about was the ability to identify the problem by people who actually do the work and then create some kind of conclusion, findings or, or judgment of needs or corrective actions or fixes based upon what the team thought was there. And we just, we started doing them and they were hugely successful. And what's interesting, at least to me, is that we kind of lost control of them, which is great. I mean, that's, that is the highest compliment you can have. And they started using them for everything, not just safety, but they started using them for operational issues or, or uh, analysis issues. And that's kind of the origin of the learning team. What makes me so excited is that other people around the globe have taken this and ran with it. I mean, fast ran with it. And now it's kind of a thing all its own. And it's a thing all its own, not because I said, call it a learning team. I'm pretty sure that didn't matter at all. But because people found the tool to be incredibly helpful and move the organization forward and get better at operational learning. 
So, Steve, that is the longest answer to that question I could possibly think. And I wasn't even trying to go long, but I went long because I had to tell you a lot of the story. Thank you for asking. That was very kind of you. Okay, this one actually also comes from Steve. Okay, I don't know if they're the same Steve or not. I mean, I actually do. They're not the same Steve because the email's got the name on it. But I'm acting like everyone's name's... Well, I'm not... I'm not acting like everyone's name Steve. Everyone's name Steve, but they're not the same Steve. But I was acting like they were. Okay. Steve asked really, dear Todd, if you could pick one thing to illustrate the power of this new safety thinking, what would it be? Cheers, Steve. Huh. So I, I don't, if I could pick one thing, I only get one thing. So is my one, can my one thing be, I get 10 more things or is that cheating? Uh, You can't answer. So I think I'm gonna have to go with it. If I could think of one thing that has had the most impact on success in helping organizations change towards a more systemic view of operations, of reliability, environment, quality, safety, all the things we talk about. If I could think of, if I had to just do one thing like Steve's making me do here, I think the one thing I would pick is the way the new view, the safety differently view, changes how we look at the worker. I think we kind of gloss over this when we talk about it because we think of these things all the time and we say them all the time, so they probably don't have a lot of impact. Kind of the frog in the boiling water story. But the fact that when we say the worker is not the problem to be fixed, the worker is actually the problem solver, the solution. That is an enormous shift paradigmatically in how we look at programs and functions like safety. Because really up until pretty recently, I mean, we're all terribly young and good looking, up until pretty recently, most safety programs were directed at fixing the worker, make the worker care more, engage their hearts and minds, observe, coach, counsel the worker, get people to commit publicly to being safe, get them to hold this as a, as a sacred and vital trust for the organization. And therefore, the organization gets safer when people get safer. But I actually think the one message, if I could only have one, and that is the rule you gave me, the one message I think that's worth repeating is that, in fact, those people aren't the problem to be fixed. They're not the only lever you can pull to make safety better. They're actually the solution. They're, you're not going to get better without them. And asking them to try harder I think is kind of emotionally abusive and it assumes on the surface that the reason safety problems happen is because we don't try hard enough. And we know that's not true. I mean, we just know that's not true. It's not that workers make bad choices, at least in the information that I look at and in the events that I investigate. The problem is, is that usually workers have bad choices. And they select the lesser of the three evils 
which they think at the time will make the biggest difference. Understanding that that's a non-causal function, workers don't cause failure. What workers do is sort of highlight failure. That's a hard sell, but I actually think that message that the worker's not the problem to be fixed, right? The worker's the solution. That message probably has done more for at least me than any other message I could think of. And there's a ton. I mean, if I had three, I'd come up with three. If if Steve gave me 10, I'd come up with 10. But since you uh, built really rigid parameters around your question, and it is your question, I, I must admit, that's where I would go with that answer. That's a pretty good question, actually. I didn't think that going into it either. <laughs> um, I like that question more now that I've answered it than when I read it. So there. Thank you, Steve. Next question is from Tony. Don't know if it's man or woman. Really don't either. I get, You can't really tell that from email. So I wouldn't know that anyway. And Tony, which is not Steve, which I know is disappointing because you thought we'd be all Steves, but I only had two Steves. So, and I put them together because I thought it was clever. Tony is asking, dear Todd, I've heard you say and have read in your writing that fatalities aren't a failure of prevention. Fatalities, fatalities, I can't even talk. Fatalities are a failure of control. What do you mean and why do you say that? Thank you for the work you do, Tony. All right, Tony. So what do I mean and why do I say that? Hmm. So first of all, I think it's really important when an organization has a fatality to build in almost immediately this notion of restoration, of restoring the organization's ability to do high-risk work better than they did before. And you don't get there without using the basic underpinnings of rest- of restoration. I can't even say the word, right? And that is who's been hurt, what do they need, and who's going to give it to them. Those three questions are really valuable. I use them all the time. Anytime I help an organization that's had a fatality, chances are really high, uh, maybe a probability of one, that those are the three questions I'll be thinking about when I talk to leaders and managers. But I think it's more than that. I mean, that that's, that's hugely important, and that's the foundation. I think it's really important to realize that f- fatalities aren't a lack of prevention, right? Because we can't prevent everything because we can't predict everything. Fatalities seem to be really much more aligned with this idea of a loss of control. So something bad happened, and the system in which the bad thing happened didn't have the ability to cope with the consequence. So we got, we got past our ability to manage the energy, as Tony Mashar would say, right? And, and when you start thinking about fatalities, not as a lack of prevention, but as a lack of control, what it does, and this is probably the why part, Tony, what it does is actually allows the organization the freedom, is that the right word? The, the ability, maybe that's a little better, the ability to look beyond how they failed to prevent the fatality. Because organizations, at least in my experience, do really deep, deep dives into how they failed to prevent 
the person from dying. But I actually think that's kind of not very interesting and sort of goes down the blame territory and is the opposite of restoration. That actually causes hurt and harm. It, it doesn't ask who's been hurt. It, it, it actually makes people feel worse about the horrible thing that happened, and they already feel really bad. That's why I think it's so valuable to say that really a fatality is the absence of control. And it allows us to move beyond the traditional, typical uh, bias around prevention and actually embrace the ability to establish, confirm, and have controls in the system. And that, I think, seems to make a huge difference, at least in the organizations that I've been a part of. Once you get them to validate and verify the presence of controls and to start the job when safe or sure, start the job when sure, then what happens is the people get a lot safer. And the outcomes, they still have failure. They still have anomalies. There's still variability in the system. But the system now has the ability to cope with that variability, that anomaly. And it creates what David Woods, one of my favorite people in the world, calls graceful extensibility. It allows more time for recovery. And I do think that's a pretty valid part of what we talk about. That's a really good question, Tony. Some of these questions are good. I, I, I don't know. It seems like they're good. Thank you. Last question comes from someone who chooses to be known as anonymous. Okay, let's just say anonymous. But before we go any further, you know who you are. I like this question too, so I don't know why it's anonymous. Todd, why an e-bike? Isn't that cheating? Signed, anonymous. Is an electric bike cheating? Yes, probably. I, I think it is cheating. But here's what it did for me. I would never in a billion years think it's uh, it's super windy. I think I'll go ride my bike. Or it's kind of cold out. I think I'll go ride my bike. In fact, I'm the kind of guy. Have you seen me? I think you could probably tell this. I'm the kind of guy that I actively look for reasons not to do stuff like not to ride my bike. And I could come up with, don't push me because it'd be hard to measure this, but I think I could come up with an infinite number of reasons why I don't want to ride my bike. But then the e-bike shot into my life because people all of a sudden talking about it. And what I found is that the e-bike does something amazing. So you know when you ride a bike, half of your trip is downhill. You know this, right? That's always true. What an e-bike does is takes away the hills and takes away the wind. And e-bikes aren't about fast. E-bikes are about far. And so what I found is that I can listen to podcasts, something I used to do while sitting on planes flying out to see you, but now I don't do that anymore. I can listen to a podcast, a 45-minute, an hour-long podcast, something like that, and actually be on my bike riding around and I get kind of a lot of exercise. 
because you have to pedal. It's not like a motorcycle. That's called a motorcycle. It's a bicycle. You have to pedal, and then the motor assists you while you pedal. So is it cheating? Yeah, I think it is. I'll admit to it, it's cheating. But it strikes me as a really smart way to cheat the system. Because what it's done is it's made me go out and ride bikes in all kinds of conditions. Because the one thing about sitting on an e-bike, and if you haven't done it yet, run down and try one, is that it makes you smile. And that, that's worth it, Anonymous. I don't know why you were such a wuss and couldn't ask me this question straight up to my face, but you didn't. And so, therefore, I will respect your wishes to be anonymous. Sean, how is the new e-bike? I'm pretty sure this is you. So there you have it. Those are the questions. I think this is the last episode of Ask Todd Questions. I I shouldn't say that because if good questions come in, this was more fun than I thought it would be. I'll just say that going into it. And if good questions come in, I'll take it. But I actually think it's more fun to talk to people just because you get a chance to meet new people. I mean, there's been a bunch of great, and there's, oh, there's really great people. Oh, there's like big famous people coming on this year. So be ready, right? But I appreciate the fact that there are probably some questions that I could answer and they're hard-hitting, life-changing, amazingly important questions like, why an e-bike? I mean, hello, that is an important question, and I'm glad to answer it. I, I'm certainly glad to be a part of that as well. That that makes a big difference. Mostly, what I'm thankful for is the fact that we get a chance to hang out like this. I mean, because I promise you, if you didn't listen, I would not sit in a room and talk to myself. I promise you. I, I, I just wouldn't do that. But because you listen, and because the dialogue's really rich, and because we're building this sort of hive of people who think about this new world that we're trying to get the world to sort of adaptively accept, we're doing all right. And I appreciate it. I I think it's fun, and I'm glad we get to hang out. So until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. Check in on one another. I just did one of those today. I feel really good about that. And most importantly, be safe. <laughs>